Hello, and welcome to Punching Out. Every week, we're here on Wayo Radio talking about the problems people have with their work, whether it's incompetent bosses or unfair policies, hostile workplaces or dismal paychecks, or anything in between. We want to hear from you. If you'd like to share your work problems with us, email us at punchingoutwayo at gmail.com and let us talk about them. Tune in and punch out. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Hello, welcome to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Earl. Hello. And Noah. Hi, y'all. Um, today, what we're going to talk about is this mantra of do what you love, which, you know, has sort of, it sounds innocent, and we've all heard it at this point as sort of, you know, the idea is that you're supposed to chase your passions, chase your dreams, and you'll end up, you know, much more satisfied than just taking a job for money. And what we're going to say today is that actually that idea is kind of sinister and it's used to justify exploitation. Yeah. I mean, it's a great, it's a great idea. And in the, in a right, uh, you know, economic model, it, that's what would people would do, but because that's all that they would, that's all they'd, uh, want to do, you know, uh, or have to do rather. But yeah. Well, you know, the longer version of that phrase is, uh, what is it? If you work doing what you love, you'll, or if you get a job doing what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. Right, right. Which is almost used to, well, if it's not work, it can be as abusive as you want it to be because it's <laughs> right. what you like doing. Yeah. It erases the real, well, problems of work itself that, mm-hmm. you know, can't be erased. Right. And to get into the subject, we're going to start by talking about rock star games, uh, if you're not familiar, Rockstar is the company behind Grand Theft Auto, which is the biggest video game series in the world. It is, mm. uh, just to give a sense of scale, like the most recent Grand Theft Auto game came out in 2013 and it sold something on the order of 100 million copies at yeah. about $60 a piece yeah. because the game doesn't go on sale even five years later. I think um, it's actually, and I, can't, I should have looked this up before, but I think it's actually the highest grossing media yeah. Like of all, it's earned the most money out of all the things, like all the Star Wars the most and all the profitable <laughs> piece yeah, of right. media yeah, right. that has yeah. ever That's, been produced. Wow. Right. Yeah. Um, and now Rockstar also has a second series uh, called Red Dead Redemption. Grand mm. Theft Auto is, yeah. you know, set in the modern day. You're stealing cars. Red Dead Redemption, <laughs> it's a Western. It's Grand you know? Theft Auto. You're stealing horses. Yeah, Grand Theft Auto. In many ways, yeah, yeah. Grand Theft Auto has gotten critical acclaim, but the first Red Dead Redemption game, which came out in 2011, is thought of as sort of Rockstar's crown jewel. They're the best achievement they've put out to date. And within the last month, the sequel to that game was released, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2. You know, very creative title. Mm -hmm. Um, And what we're going to talk today is that the conditions that created those games, the games that have received critical acclaim and commercial success, uh, Red Dead Redemption 2 in its first like weekend produced like $700 million in revenue, yeah. which is an absurd total. Yeah. But that was built on labor conditions that their workers have called exploitative and conditions mm-hmm. that I think we can question even in light of critical and financial success. We have to question because no one else is going to do it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. They set these, I mean, what ends up happening is games like this, you know, get deadlines for release and then they inevitably get pushed back, which I think I, I read that the, uh, Red Dead 2 got pushed back like internally twice and then mm-hmm. publicly twice or something like that. Yeah. Um, but once, you, once you've done it so many times and games like this where the demand is just through the roof, people are, are chomping at the bit for these games, uh, the companies are hell-bent on making these deadlines and the people that work for them, who a lot of them are salaried, just get it done. That basically becomes yeah. the, you know, and they refer to it as crunch, right? Yes, so, yeah. crunch mm-hmm. is the key term. Crunch, um, yeah. And Rockstar has a history of crunch. In the production of the first Red Dead Redemption game, you know, Almost a decade ago, the wives of rock star workers actually came out to say, hey, we haven't seen our husbands in so long because they're working 12 hours a day, six days a week, which 72 Mm -hmm. hour weeks if you're doing the math. And in the um, recent coverage about the labor conditions that made Red Dead 2, there was, you know, a lot of rock star workers talked about that atmosphere. Um, I'm reading from a Kotaku article now. Uh, 
Quote, if you left early on a weekday or weekend, you'd get dirty looks, said one former employee of Rockstar San Diego who told me they worked an average of 70 hours a week during Red Dead Redemption. You'd feel the stare down, and sometimes you'd see it as you were leaving. There was this culture of, if you don't put in the hours, you're not worth working here. In the thick of this crunch, Rockstar San Diego began offering laundry service, according to two people who worked there, which, as another former employee pointed out, left some people feeling uncomfortable. They wouldn't even have enough spare time to do their own laundry. Right. Yeah. No. Uh, apparently, I'd heard that there were employees working up to 100-hour weeks, which would imply that Rockstar heard what the wives of the employees said and said the problem is that they saw their husbands at all. <laughs> right. Yeah, we're going to get into that. Um, in the build-up to Red Dead 2's release, uh, the sort of head of Rockstar uh, are these brothers, Dan Hauser, and I don't know what his brother's name is, but the Hauser brothers. Right. They, they write all the stuff. And they gave an interview in uh, Vulture where, you know, it's sort of... Uh, just sort of casually dropped, you know, we were working 100-hour weeks, you know, several times in 2018 to get this thing finished. And in the article itself at Vulture, that wasn't really explored, but it led to a lot of other outlets saying, hey, hold on a minute, that's weird. Mm -hmm. Um, That's too many. (laughs) Yes. Too many hours. (laughs) That's seven 14-hour days is what that comes out to. And there was some clarification, you know, Hauser's said, well, no, this is not something we've put other people through, but us main writers, you know, a team of like four, we were doing 100-hour weeks. And there was one quote in particular that caught a lot of fire in this, you know, clarification is that no one at Rockstar is forced to work hard, which... Uh uh, <clears throat> yeah. In a really toxic way, <clears throat> equates, you know, working overtime, working long weeks with working hard. And yeah. you can sort of see where this is all leading. There is, you know, if not, you know, a mandatory structural problem, you know, a real cultural problem within the company. Yeah, it, it's both. You use one against the other. You create a culture where, as uh, as, as you were saying, Ryan, or as the employee you were quoting was saying, rather, where if you leave early or if you're not working every hour that everybody else is working, then you're ostracized or you look like the uh, bad person in that situation. And you also create a structural problem by what Earl is saying, the, the conditions that lead up to a game's release, because we now have had multiple cases of games getting released, even with the crunch and even with uh, deadlines being pushed back and whatnot, where the game comes out and it's extremely buggy or people just don't want to play it for whatever reason. And then that causes, that can cause an actual huge loss for that company. Yeah. And Rockstar, I guess to its credit, is noted for the polish of its games. It's noted for the level of detail. Uh, one detail about Red Dead 2 that was cited, you know, in the build up to release is that you ride horses in the game and these horses have genitalia. And <laughs> when you. <laughs> Enter the colder areas of the game's world, that genitalia shrinks accordingly. Oh my God. That's the level of detail. This is what you listen to punching out for, folks. Yeah, yeah. Shrinkage jokes. Well, it's not even a joke. Yeah, just horse shrinkage. (laughs) Yeah, horse shrinkage. (laughs) That's what those 70 hour weeks go into right there. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yeah, they're not not splitting the atom, they're doing the important work. um, Yeah. (laughs) You know, so one can rightly question, you know, to what extent is this level of detail worth the human cost? But, yeah just sort of to get more into um, the conditions. Uh, the Kotaku article I'm reading from was written by uh, Jason Schreier, who you know talked to something in the order of 80 Rockstar employees, past and pre- yeah. present, uh, in reporting this. They you know had a lot to say in light of their boss's comments in the media, you know, trying to, some of them, you know, trying to, you know, clarify, make it seem not as bad, but a great many pointing out that, yeah, Sucks here. Um, (laughs) Quoting from the article, personal experiences may differ, but anecdotes from current and former employees paint a consistent picture. Rockstar Games is a complicated and sometimes difficult company, one where working hard is equated to working for as many hours as possible. Many told Kotaku they felt pressured to stay at the office at night and even come in on weekends if they wanted to succeed. Despite Dan Hauser's quote that no one, senior or junior, is ever forced to work hard, people who have worked at and currently work at Rockstar say that overtime is mandatory. 
and conversation, several used the phrase culture of fear, with some saying that they were worried about lawsuits or other retaliation for speaking up. Yeah. Yeah. I remember reading something about their, they have a pretty complicated, um, NDA. Yeah. And yeah, Uh, non-disclosure agreement. Yeah. I couldn't think of the, I couldn't think of the phrase for some reason that they have a pretty complicated, uh, and that they, that they recently lifted it, I guess, so that they could actually take to Twitter and like talk about their experiences. Yeah. In, in light of, you know, the controversy, Rockstar took the step of saying, Hey, if you want to speak out, speak out, which I guess is to their credit. Um, and in the article, there's this one odd situation where they have like, they had like a panel of workers, you know, under the supervision of their boss offering interviews. And the boss didn't seem to understand why, you know, the journalist was still, you know, skeptical about that setup and that some of those workers might not have felt, you know, the ability to be transparent in that setting. Yeah. If you heard the last episode I was on, which was the case against management, bosses tend to think they're, you know, extremely good people and that their intentions should never be questioned. Right. So... That's yeah. not very surprising. The thing is, I think Rockstar, um, I don't want to say that this is not to their credit because unfortunately it is. But the reason you have to say unfortunately is because they're in an industry where allowing your workers to speak out at all or <laughs> employing your workers at this point counts for a lot. I mean, Telltale Games, which is famous for producing uh, the Walking Dead series and, and a number of other sort of episodic games like that. Fired something like what? They well, they fired laid off the whole company. Yes, they they did it in two shifts. They fired pretty much all but twenty five employees, and then those twenty five employees were laid off just something like a month mm-hmm. later, and, and left them without you know severance pay. You know, th- there were reports that like as recently as like a week before shutdown, they were still in the process of you know you know accepting resumes and interviewing people for new positions that were never going to happen so there was this huge breakdown of communication at the very least it, the point you're making is that the video game industry especially is sort of notorious for poor working conditions it's not a unionized industry in no. any sense um crunch is not exclusive to rockstar though they have some of the most notorious crunch yeah, it seems my in my limited experience. So I, I'm a freelance uh, web developer, but so I have some exposure to uh, what work is like at agencies and other people who subcontracted agencies and stuff. And, and crunch is super common in that because basically what happens is in this, uh, you know, it's deadlines come from salespeople. Salespeople go and they talk to the clients, and the clients just say. I want this insane amount of work done and I want it done in a month. And the salespeople just go, yep, sign right here. And then the developers at, on the other side of then, uh, you know, just get this, <laughs> just get this list of things that have to be done. And then their whole life is constant crunch, uh, which it's very common in the tech uh, and, and well in web development anyways. So, so what you're saying is when the people who set the working conditions aren't the ones doing the work, <laughs> right. you get kind of a weird disconnect. There seems to be a correlation there. Okay, between, good. Yeah. We, we might get into that <laughs> yeah, okay, later. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a um, good idea. Just to clarify from earlier, while the Housers had spoken of working 100-hour weeks, you know, people quoted in this article, none of them spoke about overtime to that length, but they talk about working 60, 70-hour weeks, which is, yeah. you know, not healthy. Um, there was... Another recent bit of news where, like, Sega was, you know, sort of celebrating the fact that they had reduced, quote, long overtime at their company, which long overtime means, you know, working more than 80 hours of overtime per month. So you can work 60 hours a week and not do long overtime. So while it's good that Sega cut this by 90%, as they say, you know, it doesn't solve all the problems. Yeah. And they cut it from horrendous to just regular terrible. Yes. <laughs> all overtime is long overtime. Right. If it's yes. in, in an industry where your employees are, are, as you said, a lot of them are going to be salaried, so they're going to be exempt from overtime pay, right. which makes it even worse. Yeah. And to give an example of, you know, the effects this has on people, you know, uh, quoting from the article, I have never suffered from depression before working at Rockstar, said a former Lincoln tester. Uh, Lincoln is their Rockstar studio in England. They have something like five studios across three continents. Mm. Um, Now, sometime after leaving, it's a recurring issue for me. One tester who worked below me told me he had gone to the doctor for help dealing with depression, was asked where he worked, and when he replied Rockstar, the doctor said, for God's sake, another one. Two different stories 
Two different spouses of Rockstar Lincoln employees contacted me to share stories saying they hadn't seen much of their partners lately. So you can't just abstract it out to say, you know, 60-hour weeks. This is the human toll of 60-hour weeks, you know. Yeah. It's relationships being broken up. It's mental health issues. It's yeah. physical health issues, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, and 60-hour and weeks, uh, again combined with a status of extreme precarity. I know somebody who used to work for a, a video game studio in England and mentioned that at, at one point, I, I forget what project it was, but the project managers walked in and basically did the look to your left, look to your right. One of those people is not going to be here within a month. And he remembers those meetings continuing and the number of people in the room dwindling over time which is a scenario that you only really encounter in like a mystery novel where <laughs> right. people are getting yeah. murdered. Yeah, the lights go out and then <clears throat> they come back up and <laughs> yeah, three well, people are missing. Well, a common thing in video games is, you know, you'll finish a project and then there will be huge layoffs because they don't need that level of staffing anymore. Um, that doesn't mm. seem to be the case at Rockstar, but, you know, it's there's that precarity throughout the industry, as, mm -hmm. as yeah. you said. And while... We point out the level of detail in their games. I think this article makes note of the fact that not all of this extra work is perhaps necessary. There's um, Earl, you and I were on the uh, episode about BS jobs. <laughs> yes, and indeed. There's a layer of BS at work here. Mm. Um, quote, the overall tone at Rockstar is that what the company values most is not the bugs you fix, but the hours you put in, said one current employee, echoing a view shared by most of the people interviewed for this article. Rockstar pressures employees to put in overtime in several direct and indirect ways, said another, said a current developer. Coming in on weekends is perhaps the only way to show you are dedicated and care. So you can be very efficient and hardworking during the week, but if you don't show up on the weekend you're accused of not doing your share and will be constantly harassed. So there's this, they're not even measuring, you know, the amount of work being put in so much as the appearance of work. Right. So, so much as, you know, yeah. this secondary measure. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that you find that that happens a lot. We'll get into this later, but in a lot of different uh, areas of employment, because to your boss and to your managers and so on, they don't want to deal with actually having to find out how much work you're doing. They just want the appearance of being able to say that you're doing that work because that is an easy metric for them to understand. If they had to actually go after you to make sure this is how much you've contributed to Project X or Y or Z or whatever, then they might actually have to do their jobs. And for a lot of people in management, that's just not going to happen. <laughs> right. There are multiple people in this article quoted as saying, you know, they specifically went in on weekends because that's when the Hauser brothers were around. And that's when, the, you know, you wanted to be in the studio on the weekend so that when your boss was around, they'd see you hard at work. Uh, quote, uh, there'd be Saturdays that I'd go there with nothing to do, said one. I'd sit in the office for six to eight hours just in case Sam or Dan was there so they could see me. It was always dictated to me about my bonus. It was never about working. It was always about you want that good bonus, so you need Dan and Sam to see you sitting there. Wow. Yeah. So attendance is almost as important as the work you put in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, and that's just that's just Ugh. people that feel like they're they're either they're not getting compensated enough and they need that bonus. You know what I mean? If it's one of those things, it's like, well, look, man, I get paid all the same whether I'm here for forty hours or eighty hours, and. Uh, you know, they're paying me fine. I don't need that bonus. Like, I'm not going to come in on the weekends, you know? Like, I don't... <laughs> to, to a certain extent, it, it, you know, reading the article, it comes off as almost a self-enforced culture where, yeah. you know, it's not that the boss is explicitly saying, you know, you have to be here on the weekends, but, you know, one worker is going to be there and you don't want to look worse than him. Yeah. Right. It, it trickles down in that way. Yeah. Well, it's very easy to create that. If you if you tell people that these are your company values and, and so on... You're, you're going to have very few people, I think. We, we've been conditioned to sort of try hard to impress our, our bosses and our, and our work culture in a lot of ways. You tell people that what makes you a good employee of this company is to, do, is to work 80-hour weeks, more people are going to work the 80-hour weeks than we'll refuse to. Yeah. And in the aftermath of these stories, uh, one of Rockstar Studios came out and publicly said, you know, clarified that no, you know, 
overtime has never been mandatory here, but a lot of workers nevertheless felt that it was. Well, it's that it's that scene from Office Space where they're discussing the amount of flair that you have. They require thirteen pieces of flair, but if you want to wear more, you can. <laughs> and she's like, "Well, so I need to wear more." And he's like, "Well, you're not you're not listening. You don't have to, but if you want to, you know, it's the old it's that, the old give one hundred and ten percent type of thing." And and then and then that causes that. Like they were saying, you get the dirty looks walking out because basically what it means is if you're not here doing the work, somebody else has to do that work. So you're, there's a, a level of guilt that's involved with mm-hmm. the people who, who skip out, you know, uh, I mean, depending on if they're, you know, if they care about their fellow employees or not, if they don't, then they're just like, no, I'm just going to go. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's almost a form of negative solidarity because it's not even if you're not there doing the work, it's if you're not there, period, whether you're doing the work or not is immaterial. Right. Apparently if you right, leave yeah, early, right, yeah. then I'm an idiot for staying behind yeah. and being here when I've done yeah. all of my work. And if we all did that, you know, what would, what would Dan and Sam say in this <laughs> right. case? Yeah. So the, yeah. there's a, there's a weird sort of, uh, you're not allowed to break out of this abusive situation right. that we're in. Yeah. yeah. It's so, yeah, it's, it's, it's like self-policing and, and some kind of almost Stockholm syndrome type of scenario where you're just like locked into this abusive relationship <laughs> with that. Nobody wants to be in. Like yeah. none of those, nobody, none of the employees want to be there working that, that much. Locked yeah. in almost feels like the app, uh, phrase because they, they talk in the article about how, you know, they started in the final months before release of red dead two, they would start, you know, catering dinner at the office at seven, you yeah. know? So, which, you know, there are a lot of, like, this is almost common in tech companies to have, you know, you've got a cafeteria right mm-hmm. here in the building. You have all yeah. these things because you're going to be here for a while. Yeah. Right. Yeah. That that would, should concern people. Like, when, right. when you hear about these companies installing, like, all of these morale boosters, like, slides and things like, and amenities and stuff, and it's like, you know where you usually do that? Well, not a slide. I mean, I don't have a slide at home. But, you know, where these things normally get done is at home. So the yeah. fact that they're here should concern you, that you're going to be here so much that you need to use these. Well, it's because uh, it, our corporate structure wants to be feudal. Right. Like what well, they really right. want is yeah. to be the castle and you are right. the, the household staff. So you yeah. have to live there and do everything they tell you to do. Yeah. yeah. To That's, yeah. quote an employee, they like people staying for dinner and you do see a bit of shame if you haven't stayed until dinner, 7.30, in a few weeks. Wow. What? Yeah. Th- this is not... Yeah, it's nuts. It's nuts. Yeah. And I guess one final layer of just sort of indignity to all this. Uh, quote, one common fear at Rockstar is that if you leave during a game's production, your name won't be in the credits, no matter how much work you put in. Several former Rockstar employees lamented this fact, and Rockstar confirmed it when I asked. That has always been a consistent policy because we have always felt that we want the team to get to the finish line, said Jennifer Colby, their spokeswoman. Uh, and so a very long time ago, we decided that if you don't actually finish the game, then you wouldn't be in the credits. And in an industry like video gaming, you know, having credited work is your resume. It's, right. you know, yeah. what you were doing for the past four years. If you're not in the credits, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and you can't get a job off of that. You can't say I worked on, you know, the game where the horses, yeah, with the, nether with shrink, the, shrink. <laughs> the shrinking. Yeah. Like in baseball, when a team wins the World Series, uh, mm-hmm. they give out rings to basically everybody who had any sort of role on the team. They give out mm-hmm. rings to players who didn't appear in the World Series, but you know, had We're on the one man pinch or running appearance in like September. You know. So yeah. Rockstar is very much the opposite. Yeah. Well, you know, if you think of like marathon running or something like that, they put the time – they say so-and-so did not finish, but they still get their name put in the race log. That is yeah. a thing that happens. Right. Yeah. So yeah. this is – I mean it, I, I hope you'll forgive me for making this joke, but that's horse pucky. It's, <laughs> in, it's, it's incredible to me that they would – that – brazenly admit to psychological manipulation of their employees right. because, well, as we just said, number one, that, that prevents their employees from getting other work. And number two, maybe the way to get your employees to finish the game is to give them good working conditions where they're not working 70 or 80 hours a week. Right. Yeah. And, and perhaps there's a debate to be had about whether games like this, you know, are feasible in, under conditions like that. But, that's not really the point of this episode. We, we said at the top that we wanted to talk about this do-what-you-love culture. And right. 
where that ties into this story is that a lot of Rockstar employees, well, say they kind of enjoy this. You know, there's there are mixed reactions, even in this article that is highly critical of Rockstar, towards the working conditions there. Uh, quote, the work I did there was the most fun, most interesting work I've ever done, said one former Rockstar employee who otherwise had nothing but negative things to say about his experiences with crunch, management, and the company as a whole. I think I enjoyed the actual work more than I have doing really anything. One current Rockstar North staffer said their hours have ranged from 40 all the way up to 80 per week during crunch. I love working there. During my time, I've had multiple promotions, get to make great games, and I feel the pay is okay slash good, they said in an email. Outside of crunch hours, the job is amazing. In a way, Rockstar is relying on very passionate, you know, workforce. The mm-hmm. passions of, you know, young people, and they're pretty much all young because you need that sort of energy if you're going to be working 70 hours a week. Right. To, mm. You know, people want to make video games. Yeah. And I think we're going to talk about that attitude and how it can be exploited after this break. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYOLP Rochester. If you'd like to continue slacking off, you can find all of our past episodes on iTunes and SoundCloud. Remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined today by Noah and Earl. Uh, we spent the last you know, 25 minutes or so talking about Rockstar Games and Red Dead Redemption 2 and the amount of labor that has been required to create a game of that scale. And we talked about sort of the conditions that Rockstar employees have been under, not just for the past few months before release, but some of them have talked about crunch that goes back two years now. You know, 80-hour weeks, you know, 70-hour weeks. Uh, You know, there's this one anecdote about, you know, not being allowed to open the blinds at night because they were worried about drones recording footage from outside. What? Yeah. They're, you know... An obsession with secrecy, I guess. Mm -hmm. And nevertheless, despite these conditions that I think all of us can say are sort of inhumane Mm -hmm. in a way, there are a lot of Rockstar employees who come off positively about all this. And in a way, you would have to have employees who come off positively to sustain such a business model. Um, One quote Out of all those projects, Red Dead Redemption 2 has been the easiest I've experienced personally, said one Rockstar San Diego employee who presumably worked on other Red Rockstar projects. So their crunch issue is not just this one game. Um, Core hours, including lunch, would be nine hours. I'd say I probably get an extra two hours on top of that most times. During crunch, I probably put another hour or two on top of that. So he's describing 60-hour weeks, but he's, you know, coming off with this bubbly tone, you know. This is fine. Yeah. Which is sort of the point we're trying to get at in this discussion here today is that, you know, you need really passionate employees in order to make them work this long. Yeah. For this many you hours. can't exploit people in this way that don't care about the work. Mm-hmm. I mean, basically, is what it comes down to. But, you know, if they didn't care, they just wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and video games is you know almost a perfect industry for poor labor conditions because you have this ready set group of mostly young men who are you know really eager to work on video games. You know, it's mm. something you know I wanted to do when I was growing up. I don't. Same. But, you know, you have these people who are very passionate about what they do and who feel proud of the work they're doing, even as it's, you know, causing them depression and physical health impacts. So what we're going to transition into now is talking about how this atmosphere of encouraging people to work on their passions and to do what they love, quote, results in exploitation. Yeah. I mean, the the first thing that comes to mind is uh, I remember reading several anecdotes about people during the hiring process in various industries, but most of the, the most of the things I'm thinking of happened in tech in one way or the other. And a lot of startups, a lot of the time, this happens pretty frequently. You go in and, and you talk about the job and this and that, whatever. And as soon as you bring up what's the salary uh, or what's the pay, like there's been responses that are just like, look at, uh, you know, if those are the questions you're asking already, you're not going to 
you're not going to fit this job, basically. Uh, you know, we're looking for people that are, uh, that are passionate and that, that care about the work more than the money and blah, 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 which would, would, would be fine, I guess, if you were, you know, it's different if you, if you say, okay, well, I'm going to, I'm going to go on this missionary project. Uh, you know, overseas, and, uh, you know, I'm going to go to some place that was devastated. Uh, it'd be weird if you asked how much it paid, right? Mm-hmm. But if you're just talking about, like, look, dude, you're, you're trying to make the next billion-dollar company. It's okay for me to ask how much it is. And the fact that you're already, like, dodging the question, you know, they're looking for people that are willing to work for nothing or for minimum, right. you know. Yeah. People who are willing to put their, their own livelihood on, on second or make that less of a priority, Right. putting in the hours. And tech startups are almost famous for this. You know, yeah. I, I've heard the term uh, startup mindset. You know, a lot of companies want you to bring that to them, even when they're not a startup. You know, they're not just getting by on shoestrings. You know, yeah. Rockstar, as we discussed in the last segment, you know, made the most profitable piece of media ever made. Right. You know, they have money. They are, you know, a company with like 3,000 employees across multiple continents. Yeah. And yet they want all of those employees to act as if this is their personal startup project, you know, to put in the same amount of passion as the guys at the top who are going to reap all those profits. Right. Yeah, exactly. If they want to work 100 100 hours a week, that's fine for them because they own the company and they make an insane amount of money and and whatever. And they can, you know, take their three-week vacation to the Maldives whenever they want. (laughs) Right. Yeah, exactly. Like that's – well, They don't have to be there. Yeah, that's the thing. That's like the they, thing. They, yeah, the, okay. It's, it's they a little pop bit. pop in on weekends. Right. Well, right. Exactly. Right. They pop in on weekends. Yeah. But they can choose. But I think what, what you're saying is absolutely true. They can choose not to come in on weekends. Nobody's going to tell them otherwise. Right. I, I said this on the Case Against Management episode. You know your management when your psychological hangups become the problem of somebody else. And that is definitely what we're seeing here. Right. These two guys want the people to come in on weekends. These tech startups or, or established companies, whatever they may be, hmm. they want people to bring in this passion because that's what the people doing the hiring feel and they feel that everybody should. But as it turns out, you don't actually need to have like a company monoculture in right. brains. No. You, you can have people who feel differently about the work and it will be fine. Yeah, And I think we can say that it's sort of morally wrong to expect that same level of passion from somebody receiving a paycheck as opposed to somebody receiving dividends, you know, somebody who mm-hmm. is, yeah. you know, reaping, you know, the fruits of their labor. Right. Yeah. yeah. Which is supposed to be the difference. That That's supposed to be the whole thing, that if you're working for a paycheck, that's not supposed to be your life's mission because it's not something that you started. It's not something that you are dedicating your whole life to. It's not right. monastic vows. It's a job. Yeah. And yet I think you see, especially in the tech industry, is that there's a lot of workers who have that sort of attitude about their company. You know, we talk about like Google having, you know, ping pong tables in the office. You know, there's a sort of zeal that their workers not just have, but have to have about, you know, the things they're doing that okay. allow them to, you know, be expected to stay until midnight to finish a project. You can't do this without producing that passion in a way. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. and, and in some cases, that passion has to be manufactured. Uh, I guess at the low level, you see like retail stores where they have the silly like corporate chants, you know, designed to build team spirit. Right. You know, mm-hmm. and that's a much smaller version of this sort of ethos, you know, trying to make people identify with the greater good, which is, you know, the, the CEO's good. bottom line. Well, right, and you're working for the, yeah, the stockholders. That's, <laughs> that's yeah. the thing, yeah. That's, yeah that's- well, and, and that's a good point because I think I would argue not to go back too much to the video games example yeah. specifically, but the way that we've set up the market in video games, the way that stockholders, people who earn massive amounts of profit from these games – have set up the video games market requires crunch. It is a necessary part. It is a condition of how they have created this market. Mm-hmm. It didn't. It doesn't have to exist, but the conditions that they have put in place for the market to work the way it does and get them the most money possible require it to happen. And I think there's another layer when we're talking about video game industry, which is that you know they have fans who almost serve as another layer of pressure that can be put upon workers right. because fans generally aren't going to identify with you know the developer putting in 70 hours a week. They're going to, you know, 
I want this game and I want it perfect and I want it yesterday. Oh, yeah. Right. And yeah. so when a game gets delayed, you know, that creates a pressure from a fan base and, you know, they, they get angry. And what that amounts to is, you know, anger directed at workers for, yep. you know, taking too long. Yeah. Video game fans are not known yeah. for their even keels <laughs> overall. Right. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, like I know a number of people who are, were justifiably very angry about the Rockstar Revelations. They want to bought the game out. They they want to bought the game as soon as they could. So it's one of those things where like even the people who do care about the issue are not doing the only thing that they could possibly do. And you know, yeah. it's it's not. I'm not saying it would matter in the long yeah. scheme of things, but not even to question why do I keep doing this? Why do I keep enabling this company to do that? And to a certain extent, like you said, the the industry is built towards requiring crunch not just because you know it suits shareholders but like video games are these huge pieces of technology now it's you know a movie you know will take two hours maybe three if you're like scorsese but a video (laughs) game is expected to you know a video game like uh red dead redemption 2 which you know is going to cost 60 dollars you know players are going to expect about 60 hours from it you know that's a common trope in like video game production is you know developers will you know pile up the script for their game, the, you know, all the mm-hmm. dialogue and just show off how big this pile of papers is yeah. because it's, you know, a massive production. Uh, uh, in the article, they talk about having like hundreds of different voice actors, hundreds of different yeah. unionized voice actors, as the case happens to be, oh, you know, okay. uh, voice acting has a union, whereas developing doesn't. Mm. But, and when something happens like uh one of the city's names in the game had to be changed. That requires redoing all the lines where somebody mentioned that city. You know, yeah. you know, they have all these you know testers trying to figure out glitches because you know, as technology, yeah. you're going to run into some bugs here and there. You're going to run into hiccups, and that doesn't seem to be a problem. And maybe you know, when you're making a book or a movie, even you know, there right. there's a different scale of work. To begin with, but it doesn't have to be in this intense pace, right? Is right. what we're trying to say. Yeah, oh yeah. So I, I, I think I'll push back slightly because one thing that has definitely come into being in the last ten years when it comes to books is that aside from your editor, you now as an author might employ the services of a beta reader or a sensitivity reader. You know, yeah. So there's there's definitely an expansion of how the literature market, the market for any form of media, basically, mm-hmm. has expanded to sort of do this weird end run around actually employing people to do meaningful work for good pay where we we have the part where we employ people down, but it's not for good pay, it's not for good hours, and it's not for good conditions, and all in the service of a market economy. Mm-hmm. I, I think almost every level of media, people are expecting more now than they ever did before, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. that means more labor. In a lot of cases, you know, the scale of, you know, the amount of people being employed to do that labor just hasn't kept up. Right. And right. Yeah. So you rely on people for whom it is a passion project, you know. You would have to be pretty passionate to write a book, you know, yeah. to put out an album, which I'm sure takes a whole lot of hard work and, and to create a video game. And I mean, to some extent, we don't want to shame people for, you know, having their passion, but when that passion becomes, you know, this unhealthy company culture across, you know, yeah. thousands of workers, that's a problem. Well, they're using your passion as a point of leverage, which right. is like just the, it's just awful. They're, they're uh, yeah no they're using they're, it as a replacement sorry no 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 I'll just that's all I say they're just they're taking the thing that you love and using it against you that's what's happening no that's exactly right yeah. they they want to they use it as a replacement for actual respect for you as a worker and right. as a human being yeah and and that's really noxious because yeah. it what it ends up meaning is that your passion th- this passion that they want out of you is actually worth less to them than what they're telling you. So even in purely economic terms, they're lying to you. (laughs) Right, yeah. To use a metaphor here, uh, I'm thinking of like cyclists during the Tour de France. You know, it's it's an incredible physical task. And the way a lot of cyclists cope with that task is drug use. They they turn to amphetamines or testosterone or steroids. Mm -hmm. And in a way, passion is the steroid of the tech industry, if 
that metaphor makes sense. Yeah. You know, it's, it is what's fueling these almost superhuman tasks. Yeah. And like with steroids, there are some negative side effects to that. Right? Well, and, and also there's probably some amount of actual drug use yes. oh, yeah, in, yeah. in tech certainly. as well. Yeah, for sure. But yeah. no, I think that's absolutely true because, and, and I like the way creating these immensely complex projects is on some level a superhuman feat. It's something that really we didn't think could be achieved even 20 years ago. Right. But the thing about that is that I think you just unlocked part of the key as to how so many people, even after being shown the horrible conditions that they're going to be working in, even after experiencing all of this abuse firsthand, can remain optimistic about the project as a whole. Because that gives you that that kind of achievement and that kind of accomplishment gives you something you literally can't replace. Like nothing will ever change that for you. Nothing will ever take that achievement away from yeah. you, even if your name's not in the credits because you left one day before the game was released. Uh, yeah. I mean, and I think you will always find people who are, for whatever reason, be it a natural competitive streak or whatever, be willing to put themselves through hell to yeah. say that they've done this great thing. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll be back after this break with more on this topic. Hey, hey guys, you know that feeling you have at work, that dead inside feeling? Bad news, we can't really help with that. Good news, we can help you waste some time at work. You're listening to Punching Out on WAYO LP FM Rochester. Your boss isn't listening, but we are. Welcome back to Punching Out. I'm Ryan, joined still by Earl and Noah. We've spent the past 40 minutes or so talking about the ways in which this motto of do what you love is in a way being used to uh, make people do what they will for less money and over longer hours. It's another means by which companies convince people to go above and beyond, not for, you know, what's going to end up in their paycheck, but for the good of the company. And uh, Noah, I know you have more to talk about this. There are going to have to be some important caveats to what I'm about to say, because I'm about to talk about a job that um, sort of exists, like sort of outside of the market economy in some ways. It's it's certainly not a media job like what we've been talking about. But for those of you who have not heard an episode I've been on before, I teach for a living. And if there is ever a job that relies on people being passionate about their work, it is teaching more than pretty much any other job I can think of. Because the work of teaching is you, – you get told this almost from the moment that you go into a teaching program or you're um, onboarded or orientated or trained or whatever human resources word you're supposed to use for this now – You're told that the thing about teaching is that if you can show your students that you're passionate about your subject, they will respond to that passion. And number one, that is a complete lie. (laughs) In the school system that we have invented, which is another episode entirely, that is not the case at all. And it can't be. And they are telling you that to make you feel bad when your students don't respond because then you think, oh, I haven't shown my passion enough. I clearly must you know, demonstrate how, how much I love this subject. And number two, they will make it very clear, no matter public or private, union, non-union, religious, non-religious, whatever you want, they will make it very, very clear to you that they are looking for people who are passionate about teaching. And that makes sense. Earl, you mentioned earlier that if you were doing like a missionary project, right, Mm -hmm. it would be weird if you were going to somewhere that was devastated by, say, a hurricane and you were helping rebuild things. It would be weird for you to be like, well, how much does this pay? (laughs) And teaching exists in this weird space where it's considered kind of gauche to ask that type of question or to want to have a good job and good working conditions and good salary. It's considered weird to ask that. And it's considered necessary to put so much of your person into it. Yeah. And I'm not saying that there aren't teachers who are genuinely gifted and passionate about their work because there are. And I'm not saying that a human endeavor like teaching, it is an insanely complex thing. Right. The number of inputs uh, that, that you're dealing with are complex and we don't understand them and they are plentiful. Mm-hmm. So it is an, a, a very the project of teaching is very difficult to get your head around. But 
you will be told by administrators and you will be told by people who haven't stepped into a classroom in maybe 20 years to do anything other than observe another teacher that you need to be passionate about this work. And then they will have no words for you when your days go badly. They will have no extra pay for you when you spend an entire weekend grading your students' work. They will have no relief for you when you suddenly need, you know, your sick days to go do something else. They will... The, the way a coworker has put it to me is it's a calling when, when it makes the job harder on us. Mm. Then it's a calling for the administrators. Then it's something that you should be passionate about. But when it's something that our passion makes the job harder on our bosses, it suddenly becomes a job again. Mm. So we're bound by the twin rules of a very professional code that exists for some legitimate reasons and a lot of illegitimate ones. And at the same time, this idea of teaching is something that exists outside of the job market. And the really sad part about that is that I've been in the classroom now for a number of years, and I really love that part. Yeah. That part is amazing. The, the sort of connections that get made, the, the things that you get out of students, the, the moment where a student gets something. I've, I can remember right now a student that I'd had for years finally understanding a point that I had been trying to drill through this kid's head mm. for hundreds of days of my life right. and finally watching the light bulb turn on yeah. and, and seeing him realize it in his own terms and in his own language and express it, that moment made all of the other stuff worth it. Right. And it really did. But then I also realized as I was thinking that this is what they're relying on. They're relying on this feeling to get me through everything else so they don't have to pay me what should be a living wage. You know, the number of teachers that have second jobs in this country is gigantic. So that they can offer the absolute minimal working conditions that they feel obligated to offer because they can rely on us to be passionate about what we do. By the way, if you're a leftist teacher and you're listening to this episode, please email punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. I'd like to talk to you about your job. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm not a teacher, but... I get the sense that a lot of the rhetoric towards teacher is that, you know, it's supposed to be about the kids, you know, is there's almost that level of moralism about it when people talk about, you know, why teachers shouldn't go on strike or why teachers shouldn't be paid more. You know, it's supposed to be about the kids and not the teachers themselves. And have you experienced that? Oh, 100%. Any teacher has experienced that and they will experience that every single day. What you're going to get told is if you are taking any time to care for yourself, if you are taking any time to, you know, preserve your mental and physical health, then you are act, you are being selfish. And they will use that word, which is surprising to me. No. There's no euphemism there. It's not that, I don't know, you're being a little bit privately concerned or whatever. They don't care to invent a term for that. Right. No, you're just being selfish. Andrew was on the show a few weeks ago talking about, uh, they were talking more broadly about like second jobs and the side hustle, but he was a teacher and he, he remembered how he was being pressured in a way to say, you know, hey, would you be able to take on this task? You know, would you be able to coach this team? You know, and because he was genuinely passionate about, you know, the kids and the students that he was taking care of, you know, he said, yeah, sure, I can take that on. And what he ran into in the end was burnout. You know, Mm -hmm. his passion had been used to overextend him. He wasn't getting paid more to take on these second tasks beyond his original job. Well, and and I've been very lucky in that respect. There have been a couple of times where I've tried to take on something um, more than I really should have. Uh, And actually it was an administrator who said to me, literally used the words, you're stretching yourself too thin, and I worry about that because what you're already doing is good enough. And I said, that's fine, but this is more money, basically. And, and in my case, I'm lucky enough to actually you know, receive a little bit of extra cash for doing that kind of thing. But yeah, absolutely. The way I'll put it to you is this. Teaching in this country with the cultural assumptions that we have about education, with the political system that we have around education, is not a job. It's a martyr complex mm. with a paycheck. Uh, I'll remind you, Ryan, we did that episode about uh, October labor history together, mm-hmm. and the, the slogan of the hotel workers that were on strike was one job should be enough. Mm-hmm. And it's bad enough when it's somebody who has to clean up somebody else's you know, waste, yeah, right. but 
the fact that for a job that requires hundreds and hundreds of hours of training, requires continuing training, requires a graduate degree, requires hours, untold hours of basically mandatory overtime, which you don't get paid for. Basically, teachers are on crunch at least four times a year. Yeah. yeah. And, and you would, and if they're good teachers, you as a student had no idea. And that's the thing. Like, they are expected to keep that completely out of their jobs. Teachers largely aren't going to get the ping pong tables in the office. Yeah. They're not going to get a slide to relax. Right. They're lucky if they get, you know, uh, a free lunch at the cafeteria. <laughs> that That's like a perk in what I do. Yeah. But at least four times a year, we are going crazy trying to turn in a whole ton of grades that in many cases probably got to us the day before because kids have tons of life situations that keep them from getting their work done on time. So a lot of these, it's really weird, but I found out this episode, I apparently have a lot in common with somebody working on horse shrinkage in, yeah. uh, in Rockstar. Or we had discussed on a previous episode, uh, the book B- BS Jobs by David right. Graeber. And yeah. one of his like theses in that book is this idea that the more valuable a job is to society, the less you can expect to actually be paid for it. Yeah. It's this idea that, you know, the teachers or the garbage men or even like the auto workers of society aren't going to be paid as much as, you know, the paper pushers on the top, as the people who are doing things that aren't necessary for us to keep moving as a society. It's the idea that the job is its own reward. You know, mm-hmm. it is fulfilling in other ways beyond money. And so you should feel bad for asking for more money. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, I remember a coworker of mine talking about, I guess, during the, the real nadir of the recession a few years back, a local teachers union had its contract negotiation. And despite the fact that the town they were in was facing pretty dire straits, they got a raise. They, they managed to get a pretty good raise and, and keep most of their working conditions. And the, the contempt in which this guy held these teachers for daring to stand up for themselves and argue for their rights, it's them. They're the ones who are going to have to deal with the effects of that recession. That's going to come to their classrooms. It's education that's going to get cut. It is their jobs that might get eliminated. It is the kids that they teach who are going to be suffering those effects. They are going to deal with that much more directly than some CEO, uh, you know, whose only skill is networking. So on some level, they had every right to demand that. And I'll even say when it comes to the necessity of jobs and, and who gets remunerated and who doesn't, I remember months ago I watched this film about Dolores Huerta and I distinctly remember this man pointing out that the people who get paid the least in the whole country is the people who get us our food. Mm-hmm. Right. Is is the people who literally pick the you know the fruits and the vegetables and right. and and slaughter the meat and so on that feeds all of us. Yeah, quite literally the foundation of the entire society. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, the fa- yeah the fact that they were refer- I mean when you when you mentioned that they refer to it as selfish, uh, the fact that there's not support that. For, for teachers who are doing such an important job that, that I mean, everyone generally r- recognizes that the the more money a person has, like the, generally the healthier they are, the more access to things they have. So you'd think that the people that are teaching the child like their children, they would want them to have the best like mental health and physical health that they could possibly have. So having days off and, and addressing those issues would be a net, I mean, obviously we know this, that would be a net positive for Everybody, but the fact that they can even think of it as selfish at all is but, mind-boggling. But, Earl, we have the summer off. <laughs> oh, right. That's right. During yeah. which we don't get paid, most of us, by the way. Right. And, yeah. in fact, even those of us who do are probably getting paid on a 26-paycheck uh, schedule, but we're getting paid for 10 months of work. Mm. We're not even getting paid a, a 12-month salary because we don't work during those two months. Jeez. Which is why you're going to see a lot of teachers with summer jobs, the way their students do. I guess to sort of put a broad point on this episode, it's this idea that if you like your job in any way, if you find it rewarding or fulfilling, that fact will be used against you when it comes to contract negotiations, when it comes to laying out, you know, how much you will be paid, how much, you know, food you'll be able to put on the table at the end of the day, whether it's in video game development or teaching, or I've written in like, 
you know, sports journalism is a field that's filled by, you know, recent college grads, most of them young and male, uh, who, you know, want to write about sports. And they do so basically for free online at any number of outlets. There are uh, SB Nation is an outlet that relies on writers who mostly aren't getting paid to cover teams the way, you know, newspaper reporters used to do in the past. You know, the fact that there's this demand for coverage and that there's this desire to, you know, be in these certain industries, you know, whether it's sports or tech or education, it's going to result in low pay. It's yeah, And I'm not sure what we do to fix that, if that's something that can be fixed. Yeah. Well, it's it's too bad, really, that the that the do what you love thing has taken on such a cynical like connotation for a lot of people. Because honestly, if we could get to that point, if we could truly do what we love, then the the th- the output of our uh, work would be so much greater. I mean, just you know, anecdotally, I've eaten at plenty of nice restaurants, and the, the meals were great. But still, the best meals I've ever had have just been made by people that love the food that they're working with, and that like you know, my mom or or family members or friends of mine. Uh, who love the food that they're cooking and love the people that they're cooking for. So they're doing what they love, and the output is better than anything I've ever had from any kind of market situation. So I think that that would probably diffuse to the rest of society if we could all do what we love truly and not in a cynical fashion. Yeah, it it basically, the the problem with this ethos of chaser dreams, chaser passion, whatever, is that it decontextualizes that. It basically removes any responsibility from A, society, or B, in particular, those members of society who get to sit on their high knees and mm. do nothing uh, for the money that they are receiving. It, it allows them to not have to take any responsibility for the conditions that they force on those of us who have to sell our labor to make a living. It, it allows them to uh, basically just sit back and say, it, you know, if you were more passionate, this would be working out for you. <laughs> right. You'd be successful. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, you, you mentioned earlier the, the idea of reverse solidarity. It's it, in a way you're always going to have that one person willing to, you know, kill themselves to mm-hmm. work on video games, to do all this stuff. But that, the presence of that one person who sees nothing wrong with putting in 80 hours a week, you know, even as somebody getting a paycheck and not a dividend, he's the one who's going to be used as an example for all the other employees at the company to say, he's here. Why yeah. aren't you? You know, yeah. Which at least in the, in the video game example specifically, uh, I mean, just knowing some of my friends that are in the industry, whether it's de- whatever development industry, we're a compulsive lot. So just the fact that somebody is willing to it, they might it might not even be so much that they're willing to do it, but they must. Like they code, they're going to code eighty hours a week no matter what, and so they just figure to it's. It, and I don't necessarily know what they're happy about it. So I don't even know if that's a fair. I mean, I understand the, the metric that they're yeah. that they're saying. Well, look at this guy; he's here, you know. Mm-hmm. But you don't know what why he's there. Yeah. <laughs> no, that's and and that's a good point, isn't it? This sort of works the other way around. You're assuming that that's that guy's passion. Right, right, exactly. And that it yeah. must be that he yeah. loves this so much that yeah. he lives for it. Yeah. But he may be incapable, are, or they, you know, they may be incapable of not doing that. Yeah, <laughs> there are sort of uh, tangled motivations in all this, whether it's the workplace culture or, you know, mm-hmm. individual passion, you know, that without writing down rules saying you have to work 80 hours a week, you know, they have created a, you know, company where people are working 80 hours a week. And, yeah. And what's almost sinister about it is they some of them think it's their choice to right yeah yeah that's the yeah it's really yeah they've done a great job of Mm -hmm. doing this terrible thing while being able to sleep at night and Mm -hmm. also yeah it's it's clever i'll give them that no i i want to come back to that quote about nobody is forced to work hard at rockstar because the thing is and any one who's dealt with a manager would know this. You don't have to force people to do things. Right. It is always easier to enforce a non-mandatory standard mm-hmm. because then you can get other people to do it for you. Yeah. The whole trick of, of managing these people in this kind of project is to get them to manage themselves, uh, to self-police, as you said. Right? Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, and, and then you don't have to step in and look like the bad guy. You can be the person who shows up on weekends right. and your employees will flock to the workplace in droves so that you might see them and bestow your grace upon them. <laughs> right. Yeah. You're basically like a, you're, you're a shaper of culture at that point. Like mm-hmm. you're not, you know, and then you let the culture take care of itself. It's, mm-hmm. it's gross. <laughs> so to wrap things up, I guess, what are we saying here? It's not that it's bad to love things, but right. <laughs> You know, that when you have these passion projects, when you are legitimately interested in the work that your boss makes you do, there there has to be some level of thinking about the ways in which your passion is being used to squeeze every last drop out of you yeah. and sort of, in a way, the example it's it's setting for others. You yeah. know? Try, try and be cognizant of it and make sure you take care of yourself, yeah. basically. There's nothing wrong with you taking care of yourself and anybody that makes you feel bad about that is an enemy of yours. Yeah, Yeah, basically, (laughs) you know, (laughs) your passion is a part of your humanity. Right. If you're, if the job is taking advantage of your passion, but not treating you like a human, that's a problem. Yeah. If they're wielding that against you, that's a problem for sure. On that note, uh, I'm Ryan. Um, Earl. I'm Noah. This was punching out. You've been listening to Punching Out. You can find us on Facebook and on Twitter at Punching Out Wayo. Email us your work stories, complaints, and struggles to punchingoutwayo at gmail.com. Punching Out is a project of the Punching Out Collective. Our producer is Ryan Brister. Music for Punching Out is provided by Ariel Cruz. Tune in next week for more Punching Out. And remember, your boss isn't listening, but we are.